Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts fortnightly podcast. George Orwell once observed that the British hold foreign affairs in disinterest if not outright distaste. They prefer the comparative simplicity and directness of local relationships, whether that be with their banks, doctors, surgeries, grocers, golf clubs or all the rest. This, though, was in the days before local government pension schemes and their curious and complex evolution, which to some outside observers has rendered them as incomprehensible as the European Commission. Local government pension scheme features twice this week, first because of the proposed introduction of new rules around employment terms that will impact all LGPS public sector members and may leave some materially worse off. Second, because McLeod is intruding itself once again with unwelcome connotations for LGPS progress on dashboards. Once we've done our best to set those to rights, we will round off with a look at master trusts, super funds, and how fares consolidation in the light of COVID-19. I'm Benjamin Mercer, reporter at Pensions Expert, and I'm joined today by Kirsty Bartlett, partner at Squire Patton Boggs, and Hadassah Shulman, senior associate at Taylor Wessing. It is quite comforting being surrounded by representatives of global law firms whilst knowing I have done absolutely nothing wrong. So thank you both very much for joining me. Beginning uh, then with the uh, new LGPS rules proposed by the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. The headline figure in the consultation published on September 7th was the £95,000 cap on exit payments, but the proposals contain measures that will affect members regardless of how much they earn, including some around strain costs, the difference between the value of benefits the member would have received if retiring at normal pension age, and the value of benefits provided as a result of early retirement due to redundancy. MHCLG justifies the proposed changes as a modernizing move that will reduce the cost of council reorganizations, but this may not be of much comfort to anyone made redundant and receiving less money than they otherwise would. So if I can begin with you, if you want to kick us off on this, I mean, what do you make of the justification for the change, this modernizing move that they're making? Is modernization enough of an incentive to outweigh the costs potentially that will be faced by members by the move? I think if you ask anyone who's not a member of the LGPS, I think they'd say, yes, you know, these are pensions that are being funded by the rest of us. And we're in a market where lots and lots of people are going to be made redundant with nothing more than statutory redundancy payments. So the idea that you could retire at 55 on your full pension from local government pension scheme to everyone else has always seemed extraordinarily generous. And I think for members, it depends on what you're planning to do at age 55, I think, because lots of people nowadays aren't going to retire at 55, don't want to retire at 55. Life expectancy has gone up. People don't want to be sat at home for 30 years not working. And to have the option to continue working, accrue pension somewhere else is quite attractive for some members. So I think it depends on where you're sat around this table and and what you want to do next. Certainly sounds that way. And I suppose that there might be some comfort to them knowing that the change hasn't yet taken place at a time when we might be expecting mass redundancies. They might still not be subject to that particular change in the way it's calculated. Um, Kirsty, if I can turn to you, there are presumably some cost implications as well, but also... um, sort of agency and administrative implications is the proposals are going to introduce quite a sophisticated choice between taking pension benefits early or taking a redundancy payment. This is something that members will have to make a decision for themselves on. Are they well informed, sufficiently well informed to make that choice, do you think? Is there enough advice available to them to assist them should this change come to pass? In a short word, I suspect no. My anticipation is that in spite of all the very good communication that LGPS funds give to their members, 
there's a lot of people out there who won't really appreciate the value of the benefits that they've got. I think it's worth just kind of sense checking that the average value of LGPS pensions in pure annual monetary terms is quite low. And I think it's about £4,000 is the average as an annual pension at normal retirement age. So we are not talking about people who are necessarily used to having vast amounts of money. And the appreciation of the cost of receiving your pension up to 10 years early, I think that will be quite a surprise to people. It'll be a very big number. It'll potentially wipe out the cash redundancy payment that people might have otherwise received. And the decision between money in the hand today versus a guaranteed income for the rest of their lives, as we all know from transfer scams and such like, that's a really, really difficult position to put people in and a hard decision to make, particularly if you're facing redundancy in the current job market and and all the uncertainty. So I think there is a risk that members may be faced with a decision that they don't feel terribly well equipped to take. And inevitably, they're going to look to their employers and to the administering authorities for help with that decision. That's going to be an extra burden on administering authorities just at a time. We're going to come on to talk about McLeod when they are extremely busy and and, and have an awful lot on their plates. As a lawyer, I'm always slightly nervous when you give people complicated choices and in 10 years time, they feel that they have made the wrong decision as to which door are they going to come knocking on with any complaints. And I think that's something that we'd need to be alive to as well. It's a tough one, this. There is a very, very clear government policy around the cost of reorganisations and such like, which it's slightly unfortunate that pensions have fallen into this. But from a public policy perspective, I can see where they're coming from. This is a lot of money if you look at it from a taxpayer perspective. But it's quite a hard position to put members in, particularly people who might be facing redundancy in the immediate short term and and just kind of understanding what the implications of this might be, because we know it's coming down the line. but We don't yet have all the information to be making definitive calculations and giving people quotations at the moment. It, It feels slightly uncomfortable. Hadassah, is that something you would agree with? I mean, it's also, I mean, I suppose if we were trying to eject an unusual note of optimism into these particularly dire times, is there is there an ideal outcome to this? Is there a best of all worlds outcome that could possibly be reached? Or is it just a case that there have to be trade-offs for making these modernising moves and that, that unfortunately the LGPS scheme members are on the wrong side of it? Yeah, I think the moment that the government decides they need to cut a cost, someone's going to lose out. That's just the way it is. I think it's particularly unfortunate that the way that happens in this case is it, as Kirsty said, very complicated for people to work out what the implications for them as an individual are. And I, I suspect the pensions ombudsman is going to be quite busy dealing with complaints of all sorts when people realise that they're not in the position they hope they would be. Because at the end of the day, the government's not going to do anything about these complaints. The LGPS will say, well, we gave you the option. It's the one you chose. And people are still going to be disappointed. It's part of the difficulty of having a really complicated local government pension scheme. And, you know, a lot of people who, as Kirsty said, aren't used to having to be in this position, along with financial advice being expensive. You know, most of these people aren't going to be able to afford to take advice. So unless we're going to do something about that at the same time, I can't see a way that we all end up in a happy place that you've pushed us to try and reach. 
But I do think it's worth saying that it's positive that people will be given a choice, notwithstanding all the complexities and difficulties. When the original proposals were made, it, it looked as though people were still going to have to take a mandatory pension at age 55 and the cost would just be factored in and then they might end up having to repay significant sums of money. So I do think we've got to a better place than we originally feared. We're just going to have to support members adequately so that they can make an informed choice as to what they prefer. Absolutely. And we wish them the best of luck in their endeavours. If we move then um, from one potential administrative headache to another absolutely definitely big administrative headache, uh, we move to our second LGBS story. Um, I have a theory, it's called the stasis rule of government, and it holds that whenever progress or a change is mooted in one area, regress must occur in another. Uh, and in this case, it's McLeod with the reform potentially creating challenges for LGPS providing information to pensions dashboards, data, estimated retirement income accrued, entitlements and so on that could take as much as three years to solve. Kirsty, this is a double whammy, isn't it? You've got dashboards, which are already quite a significant operation and the McLeod remedy uh, as well, which requires a considerable amount of work. What would be the impact of a three-year delay to dashboards, if that is what we end up getting when it comes to their application to LGPS? I think I should start by saying I think the dashboard is a brilliant concept. Just for me as an individual, the idea of being able to just go onto one website and see all my pensions information, I think it's fabulous. I'm deeply, deeply sceptical about what the eventual timelines will be in any event, because it's such a huge undertaking and it is so important to get it right. I think as an industry, we will shoot ourselves right royally in the foot if this is rushed through and turns out that the information is not sufficiently helpful or reliable. So I have to say, I mean, you know, the timescales from the cloud the government has said it hopes to have the legislation all in place by 2022, but funds should have a pretty good idea of the data that they are going to need in advance of that, because there's a huge amount of work, as you've said, just working with software providers or the employers who are going to have to provide additional data and such like. I'd be quite gobsmacked if LGPS funds were being expected to provide data for the dashboard much in advance of that anyway. So I'm not sure that this is going to necessarily result in an additional three-year delay to LGPS funds being able to provide information to the dashboards. I suspect it'll make the job that they were already going to have to go through that much harder, and it might push timelines back a little bit. But the idea that in three years' time, we're going to have a fund the size of and complexity of the LGPS up and running even without McLeod on the dashboard, I think is quite optimistic. As I understand it, the timelines for the dashboard are still unspecified, although there is huge amount of work going on. And, you know, quite sensibly, I think they've suggested they're going to go for the lower hanging fruit first. So big DC master trust, where you've got enormous numbers of people saving into them at the moment. And the data requirements are comparatively simple. So I think the staged approach that the dashboard operators are going to be looking at means the LGPS would have been somewhere down the line anyway, which I think is good. The, the McLeod requirements are going to involve an awful lot of communication with members. The information about the underpin that affected people are going to have to be given every single year means hopefully LGPS members will have access to quite a lot of information about their benefits and you know, it will have been poured through and, and based on new data and, and such like. So 
it's not going to be necessarily on a website at the push of a button alongside everything else, but the information is going to be there. And Adassa, I wonder if you want to come in on this. I mean, obviously, you've got not only the complications of introducing all of this, well, the data collection effort, but you've got new software that is required to host dashboards and historically public sector and IT projects don't necessarily go that well together. And you've got, you know, the introduction of, or at least the prospect of mandatory benefit estimates, they're difficult to calculate. And at the end of all of it, you need something which actually makes sense to users. Would you be optimistic or pessimistic about the likelihood of this being done? The McLeod remedy, for instance, being settled within three years, but then also dashboards after that, which have a longer time. Where would you stand on the optimism, pessimism scale? Yeah, I think I'm with Kirsty that the three years, even without McLeod, is a challenge for all the reasons that have been expressed. But I, I think there's an opportunity for the dashboard to be used in parts of the pension sector first. So hopefully that will help take out some of the kinks before the LGPS try and get their systems to talk to the dashboards. And I think the dashboard should try and do that. There's definitely a case for done is better than perfect. And actually, particularly with small DC pots, they're the ones that people forget about. You're far less likely to have forgotten that you've got your pension in the LGPS because you get the level of communication that you do. Whereas if you've moved employers six times in the last 10 years, you're probably not going to know where those all are. So actually moving forward the dashboard to at least get those online, even if you just had a line that said, don't forget, you may have other pensions here, here and here, contact the schemes directly for further information. At least people would get some information, which would be better than currently having none. I really do think that we need a done is better than perfect approach to this because otherwise I don't think we'll ever get the dashboards up and running if we're waiting for everybody to be 100% ready before we do anything. Absolutely. It may come as some sort of slight relief to LGPS if it turns out that all the mistakes are made first with the big DC master trusts and ironed out before they get there. But um, on the subject of big DC master trusts, actually that, that provides us with quite a nice segue as we move away finally from our Uh, LGPS stories to this week's penultimate topic, and that is the drive for consolidation, which continues apace. Mercer has launched its new master trust. Super funds are in vogue over at the Department for Work and Pensions, uh, which separately has published a consultation arguing that small schemes should have to prove their value to members or else wind up or consolidate. If I were to paraphrase Pensions Minister Guy Opperman at a recent Society of Pensions Professionals webinar, what you do with it is important, but size matters too. I'd ask you if I can start with you on this particular one. Um, I've heard it said a few times, at least, that the coronavirus is itself almost an incentive toward consolidation uh, for various reasons. It's, you know, this provided an opportunity for businesses to evaluate, to decide what's relevant or necessary to the running of their business and what isn't. I mean, is that an analysis that you'd broadly agree with? Are we likely to see more consolidation as a result of the, the current turmoil we're going through, do you think? I think to start with, based on my experience, it actually put a lot of those sorts of projects on hold because it is a project that doesn't need to be done right this second. And actually, a lot of people want to defer unnecessary projects while they dealt with the very urgent realities of potentially their business entirely shutting down for months, still not really having any idea when they might get back to quote-unquote normal operations and so dealing with your pension scheme beyond just making sure that you're making your payments every month sort of went on the back burner and I think that is changing now when people are looking at 
restructuring and what else they could do to ease the burden, both in terms of time, because lots of people are getting rid of a lot of staff and costs that they don't need to undertake. There is still going to be a drive for consolidation that will continue because of the statement that you referred to from the pensions minister, the regulator. But how quickly that goes, I think, will depend on the environment we see over the next few months that allows businesses to actually take the time to undertake one of these projects or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that did nicely preempt my second question, which is actually that even if we are seeing increased interest in consolidation, is the current turmoil perhaps leading into a delay in leading to a delay in the the implementation? Of consolidation. I know we did a piece a little while ago looking at, for instance, the prospects of missed transfer dates into master trusts. I mean, Kirsty, I mean, do you have an opinion on this? I mean, what damage has been done perhaps administratively? I think when you're looking at consolidation, it's helpful to look at DC and DB very, very, very separately. I think the arguments around consolidation for DC feel easier because the reduced governance cost, the reduced investment charges and such like, and the greater flexibility that members can be given within a master trust environment are are all pretty strong arguments there. And it's normally a little bit less of a project to go from a trust-based DC arrangement into a master trust, or even, you know, go from one insurance company arrangement to another. I'd echo previous comments about Frankly, companies have got more to be doing with than worrying about their pension schemes at the moment. And so perhaps in a temporary hold on those, although I can see that the pace of DC consolidation might well accelerate once things have settled down a little bit, because companies may look back on the last few months and say, seriously, we've got to outsource that. Let someone else deal with the problem of running that thing. Well, you know, and we'll just pay the contributions they tell us bit different in DB because there is always a price to pay with consolidation. If you're looking at a super fund arrangement, you have to have a pretty super funding level for them to even look at you. And quite rightly so, because if an employer is wanting a clean break, then there needs to be enough money. So there is clearly an upfront funding cost for the vast majority of schemes as and when super funds are allowed to be open for business. The Mercer arrangement is interesting. It's a rebadge of a scheme that has been around for a very, very, very long time. Um, You know, Federated Pension Plan is absolutely, you know, a name that, you know, the majority of people in the pensions industry will be familiar with. And there are others in the marketplace as well. You know, it's just the one that you picked on in your story. That's quite a different beast because from an employer perspective, brilliant, it's going to have great standards of governance. There is an outsourcing element to that. But it's going to necessarily come with less flexibility, less influence over investment strategy and such like. That will be attractive to some employers, but I suspect not all. It's going to be really interesting to see how that market develops and whether the government does anything more by way of a nudge or a shove or a push or a mandation as things go. Hadassah, if I can close with you on this, I mean, the minister has said, and he said in the Society of Pension Professionals webinar that he was keen on, well, actually, he said he was keen on going much further than the nudge that he characterised the, the, the consultation recommendations as being. I mean, is there a danger, do you think, in giving the, the impression or perhaps the misimpression that whatever the circumstance, consolidation is the right thing to do, it will always be better than the alternative? Is that is that a risk, do you think, or...? I think there's enough advisors involved in pension schemes to be able to identify that it's not always best. I think particularly in the DB context, 
the super funds, for example, are there, but going into one now, well, actually you wouldn't be any bigger because you're the first one in. So unless you're going in with a whole bunch of other people at the same time, you're not achieving necessarily bigger and better at that moment in time. It might be that you're already a really big scheme with a really complex benefit structure with great independent trustees in place. And actually a lot of the benefits that are supposed to be there for consolidation aren't there for that scheme. Meanwhile, I'm sure we all know schemes that would benefit from being in a part of a bigger scheme with better governance. And I don't think that the gatekeepers of those transactions are going to let inappropriate transactions go through just because there is a general push for consolidation. I think people are going to make those decisions carefully and when they're right for the particular scheme. Excellent. I think in that case, that brings us to the end of the principal part of the programme. But we, of course, always close with our always a pensions angle. And I think that, as you said, you had one for us involving George Clooney, no less. Um, We're always a fan of George Clooney angles for pensions. So please take it away. George Clooney seems to have developed a a side business promoting pension. So um, a few years ago, he was part of an advert for a Norwegian bank encouraging people to save which involved a woman waking up to discover she was married to him with the tagline that some people are lucky while others need to be saving which makes me smile quite a lot and more recently he has called Donald Trump a Hollywood elitist because he has a pension of over $100,000 from the Screen Actors Guild pension scheme. And of course, his orange makeup is probably applied by some Hollywood special effects artist as well. I think I'm allowed to be rude at the expense of the president of the United States on the Pensions Expert podcast. But if not, this will be the last time I ever do one. Um, Hopefully that is not the case, however. But that does bring us to the end uh, of the programme. We'll be back in two weeks time. Uh, Thank you to Kirsty and Hadassah for joining us very much. Uh, Of course, if you're listening to this, we do ask that you do not spread the virus, but do spread the podcast as far and wide as you possibly can like, subscribe, share, and all the rest. Thank you for listening, and we'll join you again in two weeks' time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.